listening to Hawks Insiders, home of quality analysis, special features, match recaps, interviews, and so much more. Follow us on Substack for extended coverage of all things brown and gold. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for this, a series that will be released weekly where we revisit some of our Golden Years podcasts with legends of the club. We had the pleasure of sitting down with some greats of the Hawks to discuss some wonderful games and incredible moments in Hawthorne history. Golden years, they certainly were. We launched the series in partnership with the club and recorded nearly 50 episodes, and we are thrilled to be able to take you down memory lane once more. Ahead of this week's game against the Eagles, we head back in time with current Hawks president, Andy Gowers, to discuss a history-making 1991 trip to Perth. The 91 qualifying final saw the Hawks head west to take on the Eagles on their own patch of dirt, and the gallant victory paved the way for a magical final series for the rest of that September. Enjoy, and please let us know via our social media channels at Hawks Insiders what you remember most from that magical game. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Golden Years podcast, where the Hawthorne Football Club is always the winner. This is episode 23, and ahead of Sunday's clash with West Coast, we look back at one of the great backs-to-wall wins by the football club, the 1991 qualifying final win over the Eagles at Subiaco. My name is Ashley Brown, and joining us shortly will be the Hawk wingman from that historic afternoon, Andy Gowers. First, let me introduce you to my co-host, Andrew Weiss. Hello. G'day, Ash. Good to be back with you again. And a bit like the Hawks are going to have to do this weekend, I suspect. We've made a change in selection. It is out Levine and bringing back Levine. Naomi Levine, welcome back to the Golden Years. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Give the people what they want, I say. Very wow. kind, we see, but we all know that Darren's, Darren's in the first. So I'm just coming down from the, the Magoos. We'll rave reviews about your first appearance on, on this podcast, Gnomes, and there will be more after this, I'm sure. Before we continue, don't forget to visit hawthornefc.com.au and the official Hawthorne app every day for all the latest on the Hawks as they continue their Cook's Tour of Australia. We're here to turn back the pages of history, and this day really was historic. It was the first final ever played outside Victoria. Following the fair and just decision made by the league before the season that non-Victorian sides deserved the right to host a final in the opening week if they were the higher-placed team. The previous year, West Coast had travelled 36,000 kilometres over the last six weeks of the season. They played their last two home and away games away and then they played um, four finals and they travelled for every one of them and they really should have played one or two of them at home. So it was seen by everybody except for the parochial Neil Mitchell, 3AW Victorians, as the right way to go. By 1991, Alan Joyce, the 1988 Premiership coach, was back in charge at Hawthorne, this time on a permanent basis. And that year, he freshened up the side with the likes of Paul Hudson, Ben Allen, Stephen Lawrence, Paul Deere, Ray Jenke, 
establishing themselves as regular senior players. The mercurial Darren Jarman was the boom recruit from South Australia, having decided at the last minute not to join the Crows. The year started in nightmare fashion, um, with an 86-point loss to Adelaide in the opening game of the season at Football Park. It was the first ever game played by the Crows. But Hawthorne quickly hit its strides after that and would lose just five more matches for the year. Two of those were to West Coast. The Eagles thrashed the Hawks by 82 points at Princes Park in round six, which sparked all sorts of paranoia in Melbourne about a non-Victorian team winning the premiership. And then in round 22, they lost to the Eagles at Subiaco, this time by four goals. But there was a real belief in the Hawks as they flew home after that game that they had come close to bridging the gap and could beat them if they played them again. After tuning up for the finals with absolute floggings of Carlton and Essendon, and what a fantastic two weeks they were, the Hawks flew back to Perth for the qualifying final and encountered Bedlam. Perth had gone mad. The historic game was billed as the biggest sporting event ever in West Australia, which was a big call considering just a few years ago the America's Cup had been held there. The fans were supremely confident all week, and the reports filtering back to Melbourne said that the 44,000 fans in the entire city weren't expecting a contest, but a massacre. They thought it would be a stroll in the park when the Hawks turned up. So before we get Andy on the line, guys, what are your thoughts as you start to think about uh, and you did your research ahead of this game? Yeah, so for me, one thing that was in the back of my mind is that in the last 29 years since it, since it happened, every team that goes and plays interstate, you, you hear about the history of Victorian teams travelling interstate and winning interstate finals. And certainly when we did the 2001 Port game with Johnny Barker and spoke to him about, you know, being the second time with the Hawks 10 years earlier, being the first time, we've discussed on pods the Frio prelim win and obviously there have been matches in between, but every time a team goes into state and you hear about a Victorian team, how hard it is to do it all started in 1991 when Hawthorne went across to Perth and this was that moment. So reliving it is just a nice way of sort of intertwining with some of the great interstate final wins we've had over the journey. Rose? Yeah, for me, it really struck me when thinking about this game, how obsessed we've been in 2020 about the grand final moving away from the MCG, which as of mid-August when we're recording this sort of seems inevitable, but it's an interesting reflection of the season in, of the sentiment in 1991 where the concern was centred on whether the Premiership Cup might leave Victoria for the first time. And obviously we know it didn't happen that year. It stayed in Victoria with the Hawks, but it did happen the following year when the Eagles improved and went one better on their 1991 season. And while the game has progressed and the fact that the Eagles did eventually win that first flag, it didn't weaken the success of the competition and no doubt, you know, this year if the grand final, inevitably when the grand final isn't played at the MCG, that also, apart from being a bit of a kick in the guts for tradition, isn't going to weaken the competition either. So that's really been something I've been thinking about is these discussions and these conversations, they just come around all the time. Yeah, I think on the football field in terms of, you know, starting the research, uh, looking at the likes of the Ben Allens, and the Darren Jarmans, and you see what Jason Dunstall did in the last quarter, and 
you know, Tucky's still running around and it, it's kind of that nucleus of so many of the gun players that had been through that premiership success, as well as seeing a whole bunch of the newer, younger guys get their opportunity ahead of uh, a bit more of a tougher run of it through the 90s. So it's kind of like a bridging of the gap between two eras almost and um, seeing some of those players. uh, You mentioned off the top the likes of Darren Jarman coming to the club and, you know, we I think we all feel like we didn't get to see enough of him play at our club. But I guess similarly to Paul Salmon in a short period of time, the actual impact that he had as a pure genius on the football field was definitely on display in this game. And I don't know if there was an understanding from Hawks fans that that was going to be our last, well, there was obviously no understanding, that was going to be our last flag till 2008. So we'd gotten used to success, we'd gotten used to, you know, regular flags, but that was it for a really long period for Hawks supporters and for those players involved. Andy Gowers is on the line and let's have a chat to him now. Andy Gowers, welcome to the Golden News. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. Great to have you. Let's start with looking back at uh, 1991. And I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, so Alan Joyce came back as coach that year, as, but he was a permanent coach this time rather than the stand-in for Jeansy. What was the difference yes. between Alan Joyce, the stand-in coach, and Alan Joyce, the permanent senior coach? Well, I think probably the main difference was when he was stand-in, there was very much a sense of uh, the deal has been done. I, I need to coach this fantastic side to a flag and then hand the reins back over to um, to Yabby for Yabby to complete the back-to-back, which was uh, then the first time that Hawthorne would do that. And so there was very much a sense of Yabby is unwell, uh, the playing group, the whole club really, but the playing group and Alan Joyce as the senior coach, you know, the, the buck stops with us and we've got to get this flag. And then, um, you know, Yabby can complete the back-to-back part of the, uh, the bargain. So there was, there was definitely a sense of the pressure is on during 1988 and then, of course, 89, but 88 being when Alan was the caretaker coach. Whereas 91, I've never asked Alan this, but I, I, just, I, I suppose I uh, probably picked it up just in his manner. And, you know, Alan Joyce was a, um, you know, he was, he was a down-to-earth kind of guy. He was, he was a serious coach. There wasn't a lot of time for skylarking and, and so on under his watch. Um, but, you know, he, he, got the, he got the best out of us, certainly. And I, I just reckon there was probably a bit more of a sense maybe in his mind, which probably transfers itself in the coaching message. You know, it's my team now. You know, we'll, we'll sort of do it the way I want to do it. And, hey, he got, he got uh, another one in the bag in his second year. Was there any sense of after missing the grand final in 1990, having been there, you know, since 83, was there any sense of either pressure or added incentive internally after missing in 90 uh, to, to get back to that final day of the year? Look, it was more um, massive disappointment from the playing group's point of view. I remember a few of us went away for a, a weekend um, up to Chris. It was Chris Whitman's parents' place up near Forest, 
And I, I can't remember exactly how many. It might have been half a dozen, maybe eight of us. And there was a re- – and it was – I think it was during September actually. So there was a real sense – Golly, we've, we've missed out on this final – like you, we, I think we lost in the first week to Melbourne. Um, there was a real sense of complete disappointment and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be playing now, not going on a holiday. So it was complete disappointment and frustration and we'd let a, an opportunity slip and we, we want to get back to where we, we think we belong, which is um, the, you know, the deeper end of September rather than the, the shallow end. There was quality everywhere in that team, you know, for those sort of the old, the older guys like Michael Tucker and then some really great new stars coming through. Did that fill those newer players like yourself with confidence given who you were being led by and who you were surrounded by? Oh, every single time, yeah, both at training and in games. There was just such a wealth of senior experience, success, multiple premiership players, um, you know, they'd experienced all kinds of situations in games and so on. And, yeah, that was a really big factor, I have to say, in that 91 side because it was a really interesting blend of mainly experience but with a few a few younger ones coming through. Although when I say younger ones, some of those younger ones in adverted commas had actually been at the club for a while, the likes of a Paul Deere and a Ray Jenke. They'd played, A, a lot of... Um, senior football. Uh, I think Ray might have even played in the 87 grand final, the losing grand final from memory. Um, Ray had played for the state and yet he hadn't played in a premiership. Uh, And Paul had played, he may have even knocked up 100 (laughs) reserves games at that point. But whichever way you, you dice it, there was an interesting blend of, you know, super experienced um, talent and some younger ones who may may not have had the experience in terms of a flag under their belt, but had been around the club and seen the you know the back to back flags, and you know you can't help but uh, improve when you're training and playing with you know such a um, an experienced and successful group of group of people. You um, didn't play. Hawthorne lost twice to West Coast during the home and away season, thrashed early and then lost by four goals just before the finals. Now, you didn't play in either of those, so we can say no. that the fact they won the two after means that you were the difference. But <laughs> do you remember? Clearly. It's been, it's been written that the guys came back from the second game, the, the, fir- the first time they went to Subian lost, but the guys came back with a real belief that, hey, we can get them next time. Do you recall yeah. that? And Alan Joyce led that belief. He said, you guys... Show me today that you can beat them. Do you remember those conversations? Absolutely, I do. And I remember it very clearly because the players were, were thinking exactly the same thing. Sometimes a coach will say something and the, play, the players may not believe it, but that was def- we were definitely on the same page on that theory. Um, and, you know, lot, lots of in a game of footy, when you, when you break it down, sometimes things don't go your way. Um, you know, if you're playing an away game interstate, it's still the case today, I think. Um, you know, the the I think the umpires naturally get carried away with the home crowd. Sometimes the ball doesn't bounce your way. You, you, you just miss a shot for goal that you could have kicked and had you kicked it, they wouldn't have kicked the next one and, and so on. There are lots of, lots of things that you, if you look back in hindsight, <laughs> and typically uh, athletes are good at looking back positively and saying, oh, well, these things didn't go our way. Had they gone our way, we might have won. But we definitely, when we went back there for the qualifying final, 
there was definitely a strong belief that we could absolutely beat the Eagles. There's no question and that a lot of that did come from those previous that previous game in particular. And so, do you remember being the first final interstate that the huge build up? Do you remember much of that noise and how insane the build up was, or were you guys fairly insulated from it? Look, a bit of both, but um, there, I know there was a fair bit of build up in in the Melbourne media, and we of course weren't weren't privy to what was happening in the Perth media, but. Let me tell you, when we touched down in Perth, we were all of a sudden extraordinarily aware of the importance of the game, but even more so um, what we perceived as the pressure on the Eagles. And I have extremely distinct memories of, apart from you know, getting out of the airport and into the hotel and everything, you know, we'd often go for a bit of a wander. Maybe not all the all the side, but most of the side. Would, you know, go into go into town, into the uh, CBD, and have a look around. Some people might catch a movie. Other people might go to a. You know, in those days, an old video arcade area, or you know, do different things. But a number of us walked into the you know the the city of Perth the day before the game, and what amazed us was how the Eagles seemed to be everywhere. They were on billboards. They were on ads on TV. They were, they were just everywhere. And we really started to think legitimately, and I know coaches will often try and latch onto anything they can, but this wasn't a coach-led thing. This was very much the players talking amongst themselves saying, there is so much pressure on this side here. Yes, they look like they're, um, and they were, um, deservedly short price favourites both for that game and also for the for the premiership. But when we were wandering around Perth and, and just, you know, checking things out on TV in the hotel rooms and stuff, we were definitely of the view there is a massive amount of pressure on this Eagles side. They are just assumed that they're going to, uh, not from the players' point of view, but the public just presumes they're going to roll over us tomorrow and go on and win the flag. And to some degree, they had a lot of justification for that because that was a super, super side, the Eagles side that year. It was also a lot younger and a lot less experienced. I think you guys had um, double the matches played. There were 800-plus gamers versus two on, on their team. Do you think that um, part of that build-up um, that, that – that inexperience versus experience part of played part of that build up as well leading into the game. Yeah, for sure. And it was very much, you know, they they had clearly been the best side all year. And I don't know the exact figures, but I do because I've spoken about this over the journey. Um, it's twenty nine years ago, so my my memory is somewhat tested. But that side, the Eagle side had one of the highest um, home and away percentages of any side in any home and away year ever. And, you know, they, they deserve to be, you know, confident going to that final series. But what, what we kept telling ourselves was um, we've got a lot more finals experience and it doesn't matter who's the best side during the year. It matters who's the best side in September. And that's become a cliche, but that's all we focused on. And we, we just thought, well, let's, you know, a whole new season starts as soon as the last home and away round finishes and the real stuff begins in 
well, this year it won't, but at that point in September. And that's what we focused on. We just need to be the best side in this month. And with all the, with all the experience behind us, not, <laughs> not myself or some of the younger ones, but with the vast majority of the side being incredibly experienced and successful, as I said before, we felt that we had a good shot of being the best side in September. And that game over in Perth was the start of it. And we also knew if we got over them there, it would really set us up for the grand final. Early on in that qualifying final, uh, Hawthorne lost Dermot Brereton. He hurt his knee and had to sit out for the rest of the game. What impact did that have on the side? Look, any time you see one of your, one of your um, fellow teammates and particularly one of the prominent or, you know, probably the most prominent member of the side, certainly uh, physically, it was hard to miss. I don't know whether he had, would have had his um, lime green boots on at that point because they usually came on in the third quarter after half time. <laughs> But, you know, Dermot was such a, a big character and such an important part of the side. So it would have had some effect on us. But as I was sort of alluding to before, we were, we were so focused on doing the job and knowing really, I, I suppose, um, you know, deep down that the Eagles were under a lot of pressure. They, they had the whole hopes of WA on their shoulders and... It's the old story, you know, one player doesn't make a team and as an important part of the team as Dermot was, we still felt like, not that we probably would have discussed it openly, but I think subconsciously and even consciously we would have thought, no, we, we can win this um, even if Dermot is injured and hopefully he can come back, you know, not, not too long after that game and, and help out the rest of the finals series. So is it really really tight game the whole way through and I guess we can sort of fast forward through to the last quarter where we get get our noses a couple of kicks in front and, and they get back to within three points so what was that like were you guys nervous could you tell 44,000 fans there um, certainly watching the vision they were clearly you must have been able to feel like you're in this absolute cauldron. Were you guys nervous at that point? Yeah, look, during any final, there's always a part of you that, that's nervous and, and excited. And um, you described it as a cauldron. I would agree with that. I'd, I'd even upgraded a bit and called it a coliseum. It was very much um, <laughs> as pro-Eagles as you could possibly imagine. The crowd over there, even today, is, is very, very vocal and, um, you know, it was deafening um, noise levels. Uh, but I'll go back to what I said before. I think there was a there was a, a confidence um, and maybe even a calmness about particular. And I think that comes from those senior players. I mean, uh, Tucky at the time was thirty eight, and um, I still I still joke he was almost eligible for his superannuation payout at, at thirty eight. He was that old. Um, we had some really seasoned campaigners in that side who were fantastic at um, getting you to focus on what you needed to focus on. Um, the best way to quieten an interstate, um, you know, speaking for, as a Victorian, the best way to quieten a, uh, an interstate crowd down is by hitting the scoreboard. So that's really all we focused on. We just focused on playing the best footy that we could. And uh, as, I, as I keep reiterating, we did feel confident about our chances and 
we knew the we knew the pressure was on them, and we we played accordingly. A couple of players I want to talk to you about from that game. There's some great stories there. The first one was Ben Allen, who played only a handful of games in 1990 in his first season. Yep. 91, he's the best and fairest in a premiership team. And yes. West Australian. So the pressure on him <laughs> that game must have been really enormous because I think any match, imagine any player who didn't play for West Coast from WA would be scorned. Um, Correct. What was it like? What did he add to the team? What, and what was that game like for him? Well, I haven't asked him specifically what it was like for him, but I could imagine. I mean, he would have had his family there for one. He would have had lots of mates there some of whom would have been West Coast supporters probably, you'd, you'd think, um, pre-Dockers certainly. Um, so, of course, they weren't on the, um, on the radar. Um, but I think you're right, Ash. I think, you know, the, um, the hometown boy who's gone over to play with Hawthorne. Hawthorne had had such a, a great era leading through the 80s and, and Ben had gone over there the previous year, 1990 was his first year. And, yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in his own... His own expectations weren't met by not playing, you know, certainly as many games as he did in 1991. And um, the, the kind of player that Ben Allen was, I mean, he was a magnificent kicker of the football. He was more of a kicker than a handballer. Um, so for that reason, he didn't get 35 stats, typically. He wasn't one of those um, big accumulators because he didn't handball much. And typically a kick from Ben Allen went, you know, 55 metres, not, not 20. So he was, he was often um, delivering the ball to the likes of Dermot and, and Jason in the forward line with long, booming, you know, right footers. Um, but he was tough. Um, off the field, we used to uh, laugh because he had a, a, a strong water polo background. He actually didn't like running. And we used to call his running style the Benny Allen shuffle because he, he really didn't like running. And, in fact, he had a bad knee also. So that, that didn't help his cause either. In fact, he may have even damaged that during 1990, I think, from memory. But anyway, he spent a lot of time um, in the pool rather than, you know, running uh, during the week. Uh, but he was a strong, um, you know, tough, skillful player. And, I mean, it, it's almost as good as it gets on your footy CV, a, a um, best and fairest winner in a premiership side. So that, that says a lot, I think, in itself. Another player who really contributed that day was Stephen Lawrence, and it was arguably his sort of best game for Hawthorne. Um, they say that Ruckman are different creatures, and you can you can see that when you're watching. What was what was he like to play with? Oh, Stevie was was fantastic to to play with. Uh, I think Steve arrived the year before I arrived at Hawthorne, and we very quickly um, became you know firm friends. And Steve. He's a gentle giant. I mean, he's a very, as has been well documented, a very religious man and, and was at that age and probably always has been. And so off the field, you know, you'd struggle to find someone nicer and, and more um, docile. Uh, on the field, you know, the game dictates that you, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a physical game. And in that, in that era, even more so than, than now to some degree, you know, there was sort of certainly more rough and tumble in that era, um, with, with, with elbows and knees going astray more often uh, than they do now. Some of, the, um, some, of the, some of the free kicks that people get now, um, let alone uh, the reports, I mean, wouldn't have even raised an eyelid um, during this era. And, but, yeah, that was the interesting thing for me 
being Steve's teammate, is knowing him off the field as a docile, religious, you know, lovely man. And on the field, he was hard at it. And um, he was physically very imposing, obviously being a ruckman tall, but very athletic, extremely agile and, and skillful. I think his first senior game, he kicked five goals from memory, um, which is pretty good effort. And, yeah, he was a very skillful player um, and, you know, could, could mix it with the other ruckman really well. And at that point was reasonably inexperienced, both in terms of finals and, you know, senior games. But he really stood up and you, you guys probably have this uh, stat, but off the top of my head, I think he won the best player in the finals in 91 for Hawthorne. So if that's true, and if he didn't, he was certainly one of them. Um, and he was um, he was a real asset to us. And then on to your game. So it, from a stats point of view, 24 touches and seven marks. And in the last quarter, um, running back, taking a, a ripping mark, you uh, kick a long bomb during the last quarter to, to Dunstall, who goes back and snaps the goal. So uh, a pretty good, good game from you. And... Uh, a pretty, um, a, a pretty important contribution in the last quarter. How do you look back and reflect on your contribution to the game and how satisfying was it? Well, for me, um, so I was 22 at the time and I, as I half alluded to before, I arrived at Hawthorne um, for the pre-season of 1988. So I missed 88 and 89, those grand finals. I was... Um, in the senior team in 88 towards the end of the year, but did my shoulder in the second last round. So I was really shattered to miss that that premiership. And then 89, a bit injured and so on. And so I'd missed, I'd missed two premierships. And so the, the key thing for me was to submit a spot in the side. <laughs> that was the number one thing I was trying to do. And I only really got called up to the 91 side uh, in the second last round of that year and then ended up hanging on to my spot. So, but I knew uh, we had the likes of um, a, a certain Robert Dipier Domenico who was not in the side at the time that I got back in. And I knew if I didn't have, you know, some really good form, um, you know, I could be one of the first first to be left out of the side. And I didn't want that to happen, particularly having missed two, two flags previously. So I was really determined to um, cement my spot. And you had and that, those those last five games. You went twenty three, twenty seven, twenty four, twenty four, twenty. So that is a um, that's a solid contribution, as well as you know kicking four goals in those five games as well. Well, as I said, I, I had to I had to play well to keep my spot. And um, from distant memory, um, I think I did that, and I was just so determined to. I thought this was you know hopefully going to be my, my crack at a premiership. And that's, again, why when we went over to Perth, I was personally determined to play well, both to, A, retain my spot and, B, to help us set up a chance at the flag, which was hopefully going to be my chance at at least one flag. Um, so I was, I was really pleased walking off the ground, A, that we'd won, B, I thought I'd done enough to at least retain my spot for the next game. And number three, we were in the box seat then to you know, get into the grand final and, you know, hopefully pull it off. Feeling after the game, was it one of satisfaction or 
euphoria given the magnitude of the t- of, of of the victory, and and then having to turn, you play six days later, you had to fly back and play six days later in the second semi. I imagine the flight back was uh, was uh, you know you got on the plane and, and and got back there, and also was it the was that the time when they were putting players in business class straight away to, to help the recovery? Uh, well, the, the last part of that question first, Ash. From memory, there were sometimes one or two or maybe three business class seats that might become available. I don't necessarily think the club, um, you know, got them reserved for them. But if they were available, you know, the um, the airline would, would sometimes give us an upgrade. But they would normally go to the Ruckman because they're, the, you know, the, the big tall people. So <laughs> the tallest <laughs> members of the, of the team normally got those. Um, as far as the feelings after the game, euphoria and relief and so on, I think it was a mixture of a whole lot of things. Excitement, um, clearly. Um, a real sense of a job well done because it, it was a coliseum, as I said before. It was really and, – and it was the first final outside of Victoria ever. Um, so there was a real sense of history. There was a sense of achievement. There was a sense of relief. <laughs> There's a sense of – there's still a big job to be done here, and certainly um, the scene, you know, the more senior players were reminding everybody that, you know, yes, let's enjoy this, but um, there's a lot more work to be done in September. And we were very much aware that we were then. So in terms of the pressure gauge, the pressure had been all over um, West Coast because they were the they were the anointed ones, having finished top of the ladder and you know minor premiers. Um, such a big percentage, uh, you know, a star-studded lineup. Then all of a sudden, the pressure gauge goes to us because we're now in the box seat because we've just knocked the Eagles off, and all of a sudden we've got the easier road to the grand final. Um, so it was, it was a mixture of feelings, but mainly it, we were exhilarated because it was a it was a good achievement. Was it a psychological advantage for you guys when you did find out that you were going to meet West Coast again in the grand final? Obviously, you'd beaten them already in the finals. You'd had that sort of good preparation in advance. We spoke about, you know, sort of the close loss earlier, or sort of late in the season. Was it a relief, I suppose, when you when it was West Coast that Hawthorne was going to meet in that grand final? I wouldn't describe it as relief. I mean, it's more um, working out, okay, who are we going to be playing? And then once you... Once you know who it is and once it became clear it was going to be the Eagles, we thought, A, that probably makes sense. They've been the best side all year. Uh, but they're going to have to play us at Wave. So it was Waverley. I'm sure we'll get onto that. But they're going to have to play us. And at that point, we were um, switching – not switching. We were sharing our home ground between Princess Park and Waverley. I think we played five or six home games at Waverley that year. So – the fact that the grand final was going to be played on what was, you know, pretty much our home deck and, and in Victoria, the Eagles would have to fly over for it, seemed to be uh, weighed in our favour. And then the other thing, well, the other thing that I just kept on saying to myself, and athletes are very good, as I said before, talking positively about things, but I just looked around at my teammates and, you know, Tucky had already played in six flags and Dermot had played in four and, Gary is played in four and, and so on. You go through the side. Um, they, they knew the caper and they knew what grand final week was all about. Plus, you'll, ha- you'll have to remind me, but I think we might have got a week off as well. Yep. So all of those things add up to 
you know, we, we knew that they were an opponent who deserved absolute respect, but we felt like we, you know, we would, we would go in um, with a very good chance. And then I think it's worth addressing it now in terms of it being a final series of creating history. We spoke with Daniel Harford about the last game uh, at Waverley Park and really went back and looked at how whilst we were co-tenants with the Saints, that Waverley Park really was, um, you know, part of Hawthorne's core. And and I guess Mm. 91 is a solid contributing reason for that absolutely 100 percent. you know it was um it was very familiar to us we um we enjoyed playing there we had a good a good record i think the i mean it was a very big ground um area wise although having said that and i'd have to check the stats but i don't think it was that much different to subiaco subiaco was also a big ground and it was always freezing <laughs> out there, Arctic Park. So we were quite used to it. It was very comfortable for us. You know, just little things like, you know, they're your change rooms. Uh, there's a, a, a large degree of familiarity to it. And, yeah, I think it did set the, set the scene for what, and we're still there now, you know, what has become a, a fantastic history um, for the Hawthorne Footy Club and, um, and Waverley Park. Just a few more, Andy. This has been great. Um, you, in fact, you beat West Coast in that grand final. They won two of the next three, and they're generally considered the team of the first part of the 90s. I mean, to look back yeah. now, what a special achievement was to actually get one off them in a grand final, given how what a great side they were. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a fair call. The thing that I nearly said before in terms of Ben Allen, Ben Allen was one of the only West Australians who seemed not to be in the West Coast Eagles side at the time. And that same side pretty much was the WA state side. <laughs> um, they were an outstanding team. I mean, across every line, every player was, you know, very talented, tough, skillful. Um, they were they were a brilliant side, and they deserved to be the minor premiers that year. And I think the biggest factor in the end as to how we knocked them off was, I mean, and history will will show it was. I guess the end of the that amazing era for Hawthorne at the time, um, because you had so many fantastic players who were, you know, way closer to the end of their career than um, even the middle. Uh, I mean, it was Tucky's last game, uh, for instance. That um, you know, all all pretty much were finishing up at around about the same time. So we versus you, you said it before. A lot of the Eagles players at the time were not you know, not as experienced both in terms of games play but certainly in terms of finals. And finals football is so different to home and away football. So we we definitely felt that we had a big advantage there and I think in the end that was what made the difference. The the experience in finals really came through. So just a general question, I think moving away from, from 91 in general, uh, currently Hawthorne have a... No long sleeve policy in place, and <laughs> I think if you if you put it out there and ask among among the Hawthorne faithful to to name your your favourites that wore the long sleeves, obviously Tucky gets mentioned, but you're right there in the conversation. <laughs> well, talk to us about the decision to wear long sleeves. Is it something you did at junior level? 
Um, is it because we were out at Waverley? Like, what was the decision <laughs> for you personally in wearing long sleeves? Well, the, the incorrect answer, but the one that I normally trot out as a bit of a joke, is that my mum still doesn't know I have tattoos on my arms. <laughs> but that, that is not true. Um, no, look, I always wore long sleeves as a junior. Um, I went to Xavier College and um, in the first 18, every, every um, boy had to wear long sleeves. And I have, like Tucky, I have very thin arms at the best of times. <laughs> Despite all my efforts in the gym, I never really put on much weight. And um, I always just felt comfortable in long sleeves. I like pushing the, the uh, sleeve up to my elbow. Uh, unlike Dickie Loveridge, who used to have the long sleeve chopped off at the elbow, I, I push mine up. And the other thing that I, that I always felt like it helped me with was um, the ball wouldn't slip off your biceps going, you know, on a wet day going for a chest mark. Um, I once wore short sleeves in a practice game for Hawthorne on quite a hot day and had a bit of a stinker, hardly touched the ball. So it was a, that, that also became a bit of a psychological thing. I got superstitious about it. So it was a combination of things, but mainly I just felt comfortable in the long sleeves. And um, there wasn't the policy that Kaiko has now. And the fact that at the time when I was playing, the captain wore long sleeves, I was in pretty safe company, I thought. Fast forwarding to closer to today, what was it like returning to Hawthorne a couple of decades later onto the board? You were in that position for the three-peat. What was the success? What was, what was the secret to that sustained period of success at that point? Well, I reckon it was, um, I mean, I should say before I um, took on that board role, which I took, took on from Jason Dunstall, um, <laughs> all the pieces were already in place. So I very much felt like a, um, um, you know, stepping into a, 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 a very um, cushy role in, in a way. Um, uh, there were there were times of uh, pressure, but um, uh, it was a fantastic experience. It was great to get back involved with the club in a formal capacity, and um, you know I've I've always maintained um, a strong relationship with the club, albeit a, a little bit at a at a far, um, but always kept a close eye on how the how the side is going, how the club is tracking. And so when I was approached to to join the board, I was um, you know, I jumped at the at the opportunity. It was a fantastic experience. Um, you know, to Andrew Newbold, who was president at the time, and the other board members that I worked with, all fantastic to work with. Um, and look, it was it was a um, it was an incredible year. I mean, it was it was pinch yourself, pinch yourself sort of stuff for everybody involved at the club. Because of the um, you know the, the three peat era and the success that we had through that um, through that era, and in terms of you know what the secret recipe, I don't think, I don't think there's one thing. It's a whole combination of things, but overall, everybody in the club was was pulling in the same direction, and clearly we had a very good list. We had great coaches. We have great um, a great board, great executive staff, great support people around the team. And fantastic members and supporters, and I think that combination—it sounds pretty simple, but it's hard to achieve. Like a lot of, like a lot of great things, sounds easy, but it's hard hard to pull off. And certainly, um, it was pretty clear to me that you know the, the club is a, and it always has been. It's been a very very special place, and there's there's something very unique and wonderful about the Hawthorne Footy Club. Um, you were. 
in 2014, you were free director when a lot of there was a bit of a crisis with the coach going down and all those injuries and what have you. They're going through a bit of a crisis now. What sort of conversations do you think they're having over in Perth at the moment? And what, how would Clark, what would Clarko be like right now when the club's being challenged and people are coming for him? What's, uh, what's, what do you think is going on over there at the moment with them? Well, look, I mean, they're, they're in a bit of a, uh, a down patch. I mean, a good result the, the previous week, but um, it's such a weird time too, Ash. I mean, uh, this, this COVID situation, being in the hub, uh, not playing any games at the MCG at the moment and not able to, uh, it is a really, really strange time. So you throw those elements into what would ordinarily be, um, um, you know, cri- I guess crisis times, um, and it adds a, adds a completely different element to um, the, the situation. So what would be going on over there? A whole lot of introspection. Um, you know, different different people within the um, within the, the, the footy environment um, looking at all kinds of different options, playing options, different um, you know playing styles. You've got to weigh up who your next opponent is, and that's the thing. You haven't got much time to. Uh, for introspection, because you've got to play in four or five days. So you've really got to be on the move. And, you know, losses can accumulate fairly quickly because the games are stacked up so close together. So it, it's not an easy one. But we'll get through it. Yeah, his you suggest they will. So uh, make yes, it a short exactly. term pain. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Before we let you go, just give yourself a, a plug. Where can people, what are you doing with yourself these days? Business you want to plug or anything like that? Uh, here's your chance to sell yourself to the Hawthorne fans. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you uh, guys. Look, um, I, I run my own business. Um, I've been in, um, I guess, financial advice and business advice for, for years. Um, if anybody does want to track me down, they, they can do so. Maybe buy the club. The club's got my details. So um, if anyone ever wants to have a chat, one of the things I love doing is talking to business owners about succession. That's probably that's probably the key thing. Okay, well... Uh, will you, uh, yeah, please do if you're listening and you want to get in touch with the great man uh, get in touch through the club or through us at the Golden News we can also hook you up with these details so Andy thanks for coming on uh, it was a fa- fabulous game and a fabulous time for the club and your memories are really vivid so it was great for you to walk through all that with us good luck uh, with what goes on good luck with Billy at Bulldogs of course and uh, we'll talk to you again on the Golden News thanks guys thanks very much for having me really enjoyed it that was Andy Gowers Hawthorne player, later played for Brisbane, served a classic Hawthorne apprenticeship as in played a lot of reserves football as well, senior football, and went to a nearby private school, champion of the uh, the Zabs as well, Xavier College, and later with the old Zabs and the Ammo. So uh, just a, a very good Hawthorne person, and it was great to have him on the podcast. Let's have a listen to that, uh, some highlights from that historic day over in Perth in 1991. Anderson gets it out to the play, going past it. Hudson from 50 metres. He floats it up towards goal. And there's a good start by the Hawks. He's hurt himself. The knee, I think, as that shot by Platt goes in for a goal. Hudson on the end of it. They can run it down towards Allen, who floats it up in towards full board. Brennan gets back, but he can't get back in time. Pritchard, Luther's in the clear, coming to meet him, McKenna. Knocked on brilliantly, Pritchard. Taken by Hudson. He settles. He kicks. He kicks truly. It's a goal. And over. There's the siren. And the Hawks are through to the second semi-final. Your final score, Hawthorne, 18-16, 124, defeat of West Coast, 15-11, 101. Can you imagine a final 
that high scoring these days. That is a, a lot of goals being kicked. It was a very frantic, manic game of football. Um, Hawthorne squad. I couldn't find the team as selected for some reason. The AFL record archive didn't have it. But uh, the team was Ben Allen, Dean Anderson, Gary Ayres, Dermot Brereton, Andy Collins, Anthony Condon, Paul Deere, Jason Dunstall, Andy Gowers, Paul Hudson, Darren Jarman, Ray Jenke, Chris Langford, Stephen Lawrence, Chris Mew, James Morrissey, John Platten, Darren Pritchard, Michael Tuck, and Chris Whitman. And in terms of stats, names, you mentioned Stephen Lawrence. 30 possessions to the big fella to go with his 14 marks, 26 hitouts and a goal. So an incredible game from the Ruckman. 27 to Darren Pritchard, 26 to Ben Allen and Anthony Condon, and 24 to the man himself, Andy Gowers. Four goals, including some rippers in the last quarter to Jason Dunstall, three to Paul Hudson, two apiece to Johnny Platten, Darren Jarman and Paul Deere. And three kicks were 27 apiece. Uh, so in trying to find an angle, uh, a shout-out to one of my all-time favourite umpires to get stuck into, Darren Goldspink, who was umpiring in his very first final that day. I didn't get that. The Burwood news agent, uh, Darren Goldspink, well, he looked after the Hawks better that day than he might have... Uh, uh, 10 years later in the preliminary final. Um, some talking points out of that game was it was a Sunday late afternoon, early evening in Melbourne. I remember being... So I can say with complete confidence that none of us, and I include Darren, who's not with us today, were at this game, which I think makes the second game that none of us have been at. Um, it was a late Sunday afternoon, early evening. I was actually at the uh, with a couple of mates at the Geelong St Kilda game that was played earlier that afternoon. That was a huge build-up for that game. Remember, St Kilda was first final for 18 years, so that that was a really big talking point in Melbourne. And I was with some Hawthorne mates and we decided to leave early to get home to watch this game. And uh, we sort of leave early in the last quarter and a couple of uh, Geelong supporters got stuck into... Actually, I think St Kilda supporters got stuck into us for, for leaving. And uh, while you're leaving, you, you know, you're soft or whatever and sort of one of them turned around and said, Made a break for Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> Kept on walking. <laughs> Guys, not much you can come back with. Not much you can come back with when you say that. So uh, that was a, a, superly, a, a super big day of footy. Also, I was doing a bit of research. I went through the AFL database. I had a look at the Hawthorne team list from that year, which was about 55 players. Two names that featured at the bottom list who didn't play a game that year for Hawthorne. One was Aaron Lord, who I knew played a little bit for Hawthorne before going to Geelong and then back to Hawthorne and back to Geelong. The other player who was on Hawthorne's list for a while that year was Justin Lepich. Wow. There's one that got away. He one that got away. A couple of guys. Stuart Lowe was another one from around the time that got away, but Justin Lepich is definitely one that got away from Hawthorne. And it would have been sort of, if you think about his career, it was sort of coming to the end of the Chris Mew era. You know, within a couple of years, Chris Mew would retire. Imagine if they could have just replaced uh, Chris Mew with uh, Justin Lepich. Straight swap would have been handy. So that was the game. It was a, 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 a truly uh, historic game for footy. And first interstate final, Hawthorne to win, as we noted. No team won an interstate final again. No Victorian team won a final interstate again until Hawthorne did it 10 years later 
against Port Adelaide. Oh, one thing I certainly found interesting when I started going down the rabbit hole of doing the research, a uh, bit of a Trent crowed coming back to the club and seeing what we could get out of him moment in terms of Gowers. So uh, worth noting, Gowers was traded to Brisbane for pick eight, which together with pick 60 got us Daniel Harford and Brad Scott. Brad Scott later traded up to back to Brisbane for what was effectively John Barker. Uh, and then, as we discussed, uh, Andy Gowers comes back to replace Jason Dunstall as the director of football. So uh, without knowing it, he just constantly kept giving to the club throughout his time, even when he wasn't at the club. And the Gower's name is a bit of a dynasty now in AFL football, VFL AFL football. So Andy's father, Trevor, played 24 games for Richmond and I think it's actually briefly mentioned at the end of the interview, his son Billy is on the Bulldogs list most recently playing in round nine for the Bulldogs against Richmond. So there's a very strong family tradition of playing football at a very high level in that family. Poor Billy might have turned the ball over in that game and been cursed by the coach very clearly. He's made it clear <laughs> with a couple of F-bombs thrown in as well. But uh, he's an effervescent player, Billy, and uh, he played well against Hawthorne that game last year when they came back from the crowds to beat Hawthorne at the MCG. He was a factor that day. So a good player, and as Noam says, he's a, a three generations of Gowers have been a, a great football family. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on The Golden Years. Anderson gets it out of the play, going past it. Hudson from 50 metres. He floats it up towards goal, and there's a good start by the Hawks. And over there, the firing, and the Hawks are through to the second semi-final. Thanks so much for listening to Hawks Insiders. Head to our Substack for more quality analysis, special features, news, interviews, and so much more.